Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Sam Kachetvam Sam Vadetvam Sam Vomanam Sijanatam Deva Pagayata Purve Sanjana na upasate, Samano mantrav samiti, Samani samanam manav saha chittamesham, Samanam mantram api mantrayevas, Samane navo juhomi, Samani va akuti, Samana ridayani vaha, Samana mastu vomano yatavasu sahasati. Om shanti 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 hari om tatsat. May we come together for a common purpose. May our minds be united in the quest for higher wisdom. Common be our prayer, common our goal, common be our purpose. Common be our ideal. United be our hearts. United our intentions. Perfect be the harmony and the peace among us. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. Good morning. I really wanted to talk today about dharma because all of us, when we come to this world, are sort of faced with a problem of like, now that I'm here, how do I live in the world? How do we live in the world in the best possible way? How do we live in the world in a way that uh, we feel good about what we're doing and we feel like we're living in, in the world and the world isn't, isn't happy to get rid of us when we're gone? So, so how do we do that? <laughs> so in India, the concept of dharma was created and it was developed to really address these issues of how, how do we live in the world. And, but India is a very ancient culture. And the United States is a very young culture, and it's a very immature culture. And everything in our country is in flux, everything is up for grabs, and everything is up for questioning. And one problem that we have in this country is that um, we have so much emphasis on our individuality, not society as a whole, not the world, let alone the world. It's all about our individuality. And, and the interesting thing is now the trend is for even more fracturing. Rather than being Americans, we're, you know, what do you, you know Indian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Polish Americans, Lithuanian Americans, you know, everything is, is increasingly hyphenated. And then we've got politics. We won't even go into that. We don't even want to talk to people who don't think like us because they're like them and those are people like that. And then there's us who are smart. So, and then, and then gender and sexuality used to be, I thought it was clear cut and everything is up for grabs now. So it's like nothing is simple anymore. Everything seems so complicated. Nothing is, seems clear cut. So it's like, how do we know what our dharma is if we don't even know who we are or what society is or everything is just like, oh my God, what does this all mean? So this narrowing of our identity, this narrowing of our ideas is just, it's a recipe for misery because it goes against the grain of who we really are. Because what we really are is this eternal divine Atman, this divine self. 
And this, this divine self is one with everybody and everything. So the minute that we try to, to identify and say, this is what makes me different, it's a recipe for misery because we're already lying about our own existence because the greatest truth of our existence is there's only one divine existence. There's only one divine reality, and we're, un we're united in and through that one divine reality. And all this multiplicity that we see is just window dressing. It's just window dressing over this one infinite divine reality. The oneness of existence is the one truth of our life. Now the problem is we all love to think about how really wonderfully unique we all are. And as Americans, we are obsessed with our individuality. Swami Vivekananda came over here and he made fun of us. He's talking about you Americans and your individuality. And we are obsessed with it. We love it. It's like, oh, no, my middle initial is E. It's not A. You put an and No, no. And that was like, no, I'm in a course with a Scorpio rising. No, I am not a Libra. Please, you got that totally wrong. And if someone <laughs> has the nerve to tell you they're a Vedic astrologer and you're not an Aquarius at all, it totally ruins your day. It's like, but my identity, that's who I was. I was unique. And then it all changes. Like, God. So... We all cling to this individuality, little realizing how totally unstable that identity is. We're clinging to a straw and we hold on to it for dear life. It's all, every single cell in our body changes. Every cell changes, but we feel, still feel we're the same person. It's quite interesting. They've very recently done personality studies where they've had enough time to track a large group of people from very early childhood until quite late in age. And every one of those people believed that they were had, still had the same personality as young children, as going into youth, adult, and old age. They still felt that they were the still exact person and personality when, in fact, almost every single one of them had changed dramatically. But none, no person would acknowledge that. They all felt they were pretty much the same. And there's really a good reason for that because the Atman, that divinity within us, is unchanging. It is stable. It isn't born. It will never die. But still, we, we cling to this individuality when it's the least stable thing that we have. We still want to hold on to what makes us different and not what unites us. Because our only real identity is the Atman, that which never changes. That's the only thing that we can ever really depend on. Now, according to the Hindu tradition, if we cling to our little, little identity, we're going to suffer because that's not how the universe works. The universe goes exactly the different way. Because if we cling to this puny individuality, it just aggravates our egotism. And that's like pouring hot water in poison oak. You know, it just makes you itch more. It just makes you more unhappy. You just have to get away from that because it makes us feel more separate. And feeling more separate makes us more unhappy because it goes against, it's like petting a, petting a cat the wrong way. It goes against the grain of who we are. Sri Krishna's wife, Sardadevi, very famously said, no one is a stranger, my child. The whole world is your own. You know, we, we, that is about the best Vedanta you'll ever hear. So that's the truth. There are no strangers. There is no other. There is no opposite party. There's just us. There's just we. We're all in this together. So we need to expand our reach, broaden our heart, not, 
not constantly remind ourselves of how different we are from everybody else. We have to constantly remind ourselves that we are all united in and through the divine nature of everybody and everything that we encounter. That said, it's not easy to live in the West today. It's not easy. There's just endless confusions and so many choices. We don't even know where to begin. And this is where Dharma comes in because it really helps us navigate this series of endless choices and possibilities and confusions. So what do I mean by Dharma? Because in the West, I don't think we've got a really good idea of what the meaning is, let alone what the application is. Uh, if we use the word at all, it's simply as duty, and that's really a painful abbreviation for what the word means. Because as when Americans talk about duty, it's meaning I'm forced to do something that I don't want to do, I'm compelled to do it, and I'm resentful, and I'm grumbling about it the whole time. That's duty. I was once in a play... Um, Ibsen's master builder. And every time she does something nice and people thank her for it, she'll say, it is no more than my duty. It's like, great, that puts a wet dish rag on any kind of love you might have had in your heart, right? I did it because I'm compelled to be nice to you, not because I want you in my house. (laughs) So that is not what dharma is. Dharma is a beautiful concept. There's nothing grudging about it because what Dharma means is we go along with the way the universe works. This is in this beautiful, natural way. Dharma's etymology kind of reminds me that, I'm sorry, I'm an etymology freak, I can't help, but Latin is a cognate language of Sanskrit. And the Latin word firmus, or our word firm, comes from Dharma, or dri, the verb root of Dharma is three, to uphold, to sustain, to support. And so obviously you're going to need something firm if you're being supported, right? So this they do, and they go completely with one another because dharma is what sustains us. It upholds us. It keeps us firm and going in the right direction. That which supports us is dharma. Now, this it's important to keep this in mind because we can't look at dharma as something that's independent from the rest of our lives. Dharma is a completely holistic philosophy, just like Hinduism in general, and that really is its beauty. The Hindu tradition is completely holistic in its approach. All parts of our life nurture one another and support one another. And that is the value of this holistic Hindu tradition and especially the concept of Dharma. Because the idea is we need all our actions, all parts of our life, to be an integral part of our spiritual life. Our actions and our thoughts have to be part of our spiritual life. Otherwise, we don't have an integrated life. And if we don't have an integrated life, we're not happy. Then there are parts of us that aren't pulling together. Then we've got two feet in two different boats And someone's getting a throat in the water if you don't get split up up the side, and that's a very painful place to be. So we need our spiritual life to be integrated with the rest of our life, and that's what dharma is all about. But in order to really understand the richness of what this dharma is, we have to go back thousands and thousands of years to the Vedic concept of ritta. And actually, the word dharma comes from the Sanskrit word ritta. And over, over millennia, the word changed from ritta to dharma. So ritta was this cosmic ordering process. It's this ordering principle of the entire cosmos. 
Ritta is the all-encompassing law of harmony and balance. It's interesting that later, much, much later, the Greek Stoic philosophers would take this idea and make it logos. And the Neoplatonists would also take it. And of course, John would later use the idea of logos to talk about um, Jesus Christ as an incarnation of this logos. But according to the, the Stoics and the Platonists, it was, logos was this divine animating principle that pervaded the universe. And Ritta is actually even more richer than that. Because Ritta is the unchanging and universal moral order that supports the entire universe. It, in fact, it is the essential pattern of all existence. We cannot even imagine a more holistic principle than this. It's breathtakingly holistic. It is the essential pattern of all existence. And everything that we can think of, imagine, or that exists or will exist is in this universal embrace of Ritta, from the microcosm to the macrocosm. All the universes, all the galaxies, all the expanding suns and exploding stars are all part of this magnificent universal Ritta, which is the pattern of all existence, that exists to support this moral and spiritual order. And it goes down as far as the tiniest microcosm, down to the tiniest little bit of life on Earth and any planet there is, from the one-celled amoebas up to the highest galaxies, all is hailed in this wonderful divine embrace of Ritta, where everything is nourished and supported and everything moves together in this wonderful cosmic harmony that is established to keep us going morally and spiritually and ethically going in the direction with nature as part of this whole process. The universes are part of this process. We don't have human beings separated from animals. We don't have human beings separated from the earth. All this process of falling apart came much, this whole idea was everything moves together in this beautiful divine order. We all work together this way. Ritta was not only the highest reality, but truth absolute. In fact, um, while the word dritta later became dharma, it, the word for untruth or lies is, is anritta. Anritta, that which is not ritta is anritta, and it means falsehood, a lie. That which is untrue is anritta, not being part of ritta, this, this cosmic harmony. So ritta was truth absolute, and it was and is, I'm just the words change from Ritta to Dharma. That it is the very nature of truth, the very, the very nature of existence itself, the pattern of existence. And everything moves and exists and is supported through this divine Ritta. Now, it's important to remember that like Western abstract philosophical um, concepts like truth or like beauty or freedom, there's nothing abstract about Ritta because Ritta is the active and creative aspect of truth that brings about cosmic harmony. This Ritta is so active, almost like Shakti, that it brings about cosmic order, brings about the establishment of truth and cosmic order where everything moves together in harmony. There's nothing abstract about it and nothing is left out. Everything is included in this beautiful, wonderful, harmony of existence. The Rig Veda, or this 
word first, where this concept first appears, is actually from the oldest, not only oldest Hindu scripture in the world, but the oldest scripture in the world. It's somewhere between four to 7,000 BCE. Some Hindu scholars will say it's 30,000. Nah, come on, don't, we don't have to push it. Some Western scholars will say it's 1,200. It's like, nah, don't try to, don't try to minimize it. Come on. So we don't know. It's somewhere, somewhere four, 7,000 BCE, depending on whether it's part of Harappans. We don't know. doesn't matter. What we do know is really old. And we do know that some of the most exquisite forms of poetry occur in this extraordinarily ancient Rig Veda. For example, it loves to talk about Rita. It says, the Rig Veda says, one who worships Rita, abiding by eternal truth, truly enjoys the fruits of Rita. Rita is supreme over the wide and the profound, from the depths of the earth to the vastness of heaven. Because of Rita, the, the dawn rises in the sky. Because of Rita, the sun courses through the sky. Because of Rita, the stars appear in the sky. Because of Rita, the cows are milked. Because of Rita, the grass grows. Everything happens because of this eternal, beautiful, divine ordering principle that we're all in tune with. Now, karma. You think we're going someplace different? We're not. Karma is directly related. In fact, it's interlinked with Rita. Karma. Because the universe is nestled in this perfectly regulated, finely tuned moral or ordering system. Everything is so tuned that every imbalance is corrected. Every good, every positive thing that is done comes back in the form of what is good and pleasant and in happiness and joy. Whatever it is is evil, that is wrong, that is harmful, that is cruel, comes back in the form of painful impressions, sorrowful impressions. Those will come back to the person as well because karma and the ritta all work together in this cosmic harmony, making everything go according to this beautiful cosmic ordering principle. Every good deed is rewarded and every ungood deed is given their just desserts. I recently heard something really funny about Sir Edward Elgar, a um, wonderful British composer, who at the beginning of his career had, had a lot of things that were got a lot of public attention. They were quite brilliant. And then after his early kind of successes, he did, he had, he did compositions and put things out that was like, eh, don't like that. So whenever he'd go, people would bring out his early competition, his uh, compositions would play that, and he was like, would you, but no one liked his later stuff. And he got so mad. It was made him so miserable that he, one, he exclaimed to his wife one day, he said, God hates art. It's like, that's like saying gravity hates art. It's like, really? God doesn't hate art. God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really care. It's like, it's your own karma, baby. It's your own face. It, it, it's no one out there. All of our good thoughts, all of our good actions will come back to us as what is pleasant, what brings us happiness. All of those things that we've done that have not been kind, not been pleasant, have been harmful, will come to us in what is painful, what, what is sad, what gives us grief. We sow what we reap, and we reap what we sow. It's, it's like what comes around goes around. God does not have a mood disorder. It's on us. 
It's on us. He's not up there. Thumbs up, thumbs down. No, sorry. I'm having a bad day. <laughs> no one's going to like your compositions for the next 30 years. And, and, and of course, later in his life, he did have things that were given, you know, that everyone loved. And then he was happy again. He didn't blame God. Then he thought it was his own genius, right? So anyway, karma and Loretta are completely intertwined. And that's why our thoughts and actions have to be in tune with Ritta, because the Ritta is truth itself. And in Hindu thought, this idea, there's always the idea that no matter what, truth will always win. Truth will always win, because it's such a finely ordered system. Because everything will come about as it should be. Therefore, what is truth, which is Ritta, and which would later become Dharma will always happen in the end. This is the way the universe goes. So that is so deeply embedded in the Indian system that when India finally achieved independence in 1947, the nation's motto became Satyameva Jayate, truth alone triumphs, which was, of course, from the Mundaka Upanishads, thousands of years old. So Ritta, to go back to one of my favorite topics, Ritta works on three levels. On a cosmic level, Ritta governs the, the movement of the planets, the explosions of the stars, how you, new universes are created and how they go away. It also means life on our planet, how the grass will grow, how the cows will eat, down to the smallest microcosm. On this cosmic level, all this is connected. And this is sort of this cosmic level of Ritta. In the social level, uh, this Ritta manifests as social order, and as law, and as justice. So in India, of course, there was the caste system. Before, we all have our knee-jerk reactions about the caste system. Let's remember that, first of all, in this Vedic time, caste was not hereditary, that this was quite fluid, that it was not, these castes were not set in stone. It was only much later, probably with the much later invasions, that this the caste system became hereditary, and it was much more difficult for things to be at all fluid. That came later. But the social structure's basic elements are still in place. Brahmins were the priests. They were the ones, they were the teachers. They were the learned ones. They studied the scriptures. They were the ones who did the yajnas, or the sacrifices. And they were also poor, because they were not allowed to accept money for either teaching or for doing priestly duties. So don't think that because a person was a Brahmin, he was having a great life. They were very poor. You could starve to death in being a Brahmin. Uh, if, if you accepted money, you were no, no longer a Brahmin. That was it. You were polluting. You were polluting yourself. You were selling yourself for money. No longer a Brahmin. Below the Brahmins in the social order were the Kshatriyas or the warriors, the kings and the warriors, whose duty it was to protect society. And below them were the Vaishyas or the merchants, and they were the ones who provided material goods. And below them were the Shudras. That was the people who basically worked the land, peasants. If you looked at medieval Europe, or even Renaissance Europe, or even if you go to Eastern Europe, even a century and a half ago, you would find exactly the same social structure. Things haven't changed that much. Furthermore, don't think that in America we don't have a caste system. Ours is simply based on money and fame, or, or money, money and thinness, however you want to think. But it's definitely money and fame. So we, there will always be a hierarchical structure. It's just on what, on what basis are we going to make it? America's is money and fame, or you know, higher amounts of higher education. 
there will always be one. It's just where, where, where do we, where does the society choose to have those boundaries placed? Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson very famously said, all men are, are created equal. This is a man who owned slaves and didn't believe that women should vote. But when an Indian, when a Hindu hears all men are created equal, they think that's ridiculous. Because of course, we all have the same divinity in our hearts. Of course, no one questions that. And of course, yes, each and every one of us is great in his or her own place. The king can't be the warrior. The warrior has no idea how to be a king. The farmer has no idea how to be a warrior. And the king is in no place to be able to sit and meditate for hours. And he has no idea how to be a mom. So each is great in his or her own place. But that means that we're not all born in the same situation or have the ability to be the same thing. Because please remember, we're all born with different samskaras. We all have different impressions from many, many thousands of previous lifetimes. We've all had done good and bad things in our previous lives, done good, and all these thoughts and actions from our, these many previous lives have created impressions in our mind. We all come with different impressions. All of us have very different desires, both good and bad. And we all come with these desires because we're born into, all of us are born into different situations because of our different samskaras, our different karmas from previous lifetimes and from our different desires. Those will place us in a different situation in, in this life. Doesn't mean that we're, that some person is higher than others. Each is truly great in her or his own place. It's just that they're not the same and they can't be the same. Some of us are born with great talent in some areas and some are born with great talent in other areas. Some people absolutely incapable of taking responsibility and some people take responsibility with a spoon for breakfast. They love it. They can't get enough of it. Some people are brave and some people are fearful and some people are heroic and some people are cowardly and some people are creative and some people are not. And some people would just be the happiest and they would be happier than anybody if they could just be working with the land out in the sun, being with the earth for the rest of their days. We're all different and each person is important because we all work together in this great cosmic harmony. This means that each is truly great in her or his own place, but it means we also, we can't do switchy tradesies. It doesn't work that way. We all have different impressions because I, we all come to this world with our hard drive and the memory in the hard drive completely filled from previous lifetimes. And this is affecting the way that we are, where we are born, what we choose to do and where we can best manifest our potentials. So for this reason, there's never really a level playing field because we've chosen the playing field. It isn't God's fault. It isn't the universe's fault. No one to blame, no one to praise, but ourselves because it's from our own thoughts and actions that we've created the situation where we currently are for better, or for worse. And we can choose to make it better by our current attitudes. That's our choice. So to return to Ritta, we've said that Ritta gives us this cosmic order. We also said that in, in, on a social level, it gives us the, the justice and law and these divisions within society. But on a religious level, 
on the spiritual level, it gives us yagya, or sacrifice, one of American's least favorite words. Now, we'll talk about that. But you'll notice how beautiful the shrine is. We just had a puja or a celebration day here last Tuesday. It was Sri Ramakrishna's birthday. After this puja, the special worship, we went up to the pavilion and we had a homa fire. H-O-M-A, homa fire. Now this is derived from the ancient Vedic sacrifice. And I can't help it, I'm a linguist. Uh, there are two English words that have their root in the word rita, and that is rite, R-I-T-E, as in rites and rituals, and nominated patri, that one, rites and rituals. And the other one is right, R-I-G-H-T. What is good, what is auspicious, what is true, that's right. Both words, both English words come from rita. And you can see why with, with the rite, as in rites and rituals, this goes back to the yagya, or the sacrifice. Now, in our homophire, which is uh, uh, taken from this Vedic sacrifice, we use, instead of this huge sacrificial altar that they would have during Vedic times, we have this little thing about this big. And it's what they call a homakund. It's, it is a copper vessel square, perfectly square, about that deep, and you put sand in it. On top of the sand, a yantra, or a sacred geom ge geometrical figure is, is done to represent the human being and the surrounding cosmos. All elements are placed in the sand this, on this drawing. And then a fire is built above that, and offerings are done into that fire, just like this yagya, or sacrificial fire. Now, in the early Vedic times, sometimes animals were sacrificed, but not always. They were always with butter. It could be instead of an animal, they would use ghee, or wheat, or barley, or other grains. It wasn't always an animal. But... When a yagya or sacrifice was performed, it was seen to mirror the entire cosmic process. That when we have this homophire, you, what you're seeing is the universe right in front of you. When we do this, we're actually mirroring this entire cosmic process going on in all the universes, minute by minute, from, from the beginning of what is never the beginning of time into the end of time, which is never an end of time. It's always continuous. This is mirroring that process in a very miniaturized form, which is what this yagya, the sacrifice, was intended to do. Because the universe itself is seen as something that's an endless sacrifice. The universe itself is seen as an endless sacrifice because if you really think about it, the, the suns, the moons, and stars are, dis, are, are exploding and dissolving every day, and new universes grow up. New universes are formed. And... And the sacrifice that we do up there, we offer ghee and candy, and for just as they do in the big sacrificial old yagya Vedic sacrifices. Because like Rita, yagya was seen as a part of humans' everyday life. All the Chandogya Upanishad, one of our most ancient scriptures, says a human life, every human life is a sacrifice. We don't like to think about that because we think about, oh my God, I'm giving up what I want more than anything else and I'm forced to give it up and now I'm miserable. But in the Hindu tradition, sacrifice is seen as something beautiful and freeing and ennobling because no matter what, nature will have its way. Everything that is born will grow and then will decay and will die, whether it is the sun 
or ourselves. Everything passes away. Nature will have its way. Nothing is eternal but the Atman. All things are born, they decay, and they die. And as our great Pami Asheshna, the Holy Mother's disciple in Portland, never ceased to repeat, all compounded matter is bound to decay. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Um, have a nice day. <laughs> but, it's like, but it's the truth. You know, you don't want to hear it. It's like, oh, but that's so pretty. <laughs> that, yeah, but remember, remember. So this giving up, this kind of letting go to the natural process, this is the law of sacrifice. Letting go. Swami Vivekananda said at the end of his life, the Divine Mother has used me and has thrown me aside. Now, he did not say this in despair. He said this with great satisfaction. Great satisfaction because it is really, there is a glory in seeing that one has been well used. Well used. And now it's time to, to, to let go and to step aside and let, and let nature take its course. There is a glory in that. I'm trying to hold on and getting pathetic letting it go. It's like we are all in this cosmic sacrifice at all times. You know, the bees think that they go from flower to flower, and they think, I'm here. Hey, I'm here, and I'm on this, born on this planet, and my job is just zip, honey. That's my job. And nature says, uh-uh, baby. You're here to pollinate for me. And when I've used you, you're out of here. We're all here doing our, here to do our roles in the world, whatever they may be, whatever they are. And each one is great in his or her own place. But when nature has used us, we move on. So when we are part of that process, there is a glory in that. Swamiji often said, when we sacrifice, sacrifice consciously. He often said, do not close your fists. What he meant like that is like everything that we try to hold on to will pass away whether it's our youth or our beauty or our money or our possessions or our relationships or our puppies and kittens, whatever we try to hold on to, they will pass away whether we like it or not. not none of the Botox in the world will stop us. We, this, this, will, this too shall pass. So he said, leave your hands open. Let life pass through it, because otherwise nature itself will force your hands open, and that is very painful. Leave your hands open. Let life pass through it. So we are here to serve and to give, not to try to hoard and not to try to take, because that is not how the universe works. It's been said that in America we always talk about our rights, where in India, they always talk about their responsibilities. And that's the difference between being brought up in a world where dharma is predominant instead of thinking that the individual is dominant. And it makes a big difference for one's happiness in the world. Sacrifice really means giving up what is selfish for the larger good. And that's what ritta and the later word dharma is all about. It's what they teach. Now, when someone when there was a plane crash in the Potomac River and that one man who nobody knew who he was, he didn't stand out, no one even at the water cooler knew who the guy was. He didn't seem to be any big deal, but he, he sacrificed his life. He saved all those people and then he himself drowned. He didn't think he was anything special. When that, uh, when that 
kid came and tried to save those two Hindus from being shot in Kansas by the, by the man who thought, you know, the man who just shot them because they were different. We admire that. We admire that, the man who sacrifices. Jesus said, no greater, no greater sacrifice hath no man than to sacrifice his, than to give his life for his friends. We admire that Buddha, who sacrificed his life because the tigress was so starving she was going to eat her cubs. He sacrificed himself for the sake of, of some tiger cubs. It's, we admire that. A good mother will sacrifice her life a thousand times for the sake of her child. And so will any good dad will sacrifice themselves for their children. A soldier will take fire to save the rest of his platoon. A good soldier will throw himself over a grenade to save the rest of his platoon. It isn't like they're thinking, well, what? instinctively they do it. And we often wonder, if, if we were in similar circumstances, what would we do? Would we rise to the occasion, or would we try to protect ourselves? And would we try to protect ourselves and save ourselves? But we hope. We hope we could be that person. We hope that we could rise to the ideal and do what is best for everybody and sacrifice ourselves. Why? Don't we want to save ourselves? Isn't that the natural thing? Well, not really. Because the law of the universe, the law of Dharma, says no for the higher good. It's always for the higher good. In the ego gives, gives way for the sake of the larger ideal. The cosmos and all in its inhabitants, from the lowest and the tiniest and the most insignificant to the highest, all of us are interdependent and interrelated. We are all in this grand harmony together, and all of us are in this grand process of sacrifice, giving to the higher good. Now, Ritta and what later Dharma became meant righteous action, harmonious speech, and always speaking the truth. Now, not to live in Rita or in Dharma meant living a false life. And that was seen as reprehensible because it was a lose-lose for everybody. One lost oneself. You lost your, you lost your own self-respect and also the, the respect of others. A person's living a false way. So Dharma, when the word Rita later became Dharma, and again, just like Rita, Dharma is that which upholds the cosmos. It holds the individual together within society and within society, within the cosmos itself. So it's like one note played in three different octaves. It's the same note played successively. So from the individual, no matter how tiny and seemingly insignificant that individual is, whether it be a worm or a caterpillar, to, to the highest being, to the highest God, within that to society, and within that to the universes, all that merged in this great way of Dharma, because Dharma is that which unites us, upholds us. So now that we have this wonderfully rich background on what Dharma is, what does it mean for us today? How can we make it applicable? Well, there's two types of Dharma, universal and, and individual. As far as universal Dharma, we've all talked about that before. and We've talked about the Yamas and the Niyamas as far as ethical behavior. Universal Dharma is truthfulness, purity, non-injury, non-stealing, charity giving, sharing, and not hoarding. That is, that is what dharma means for every individual. Uh, it's essential. To hoard and not to share does not work with a dharmic universe. That, because that means closing our fists, 
That means not allowing things to work through our hands because you're, we're disrupting to hoard and not to share means that we're not, we're, we're keeping the universe from being in balance and harmony. If we try to have more for ourselves, when we work with others, the pattern should be cooperation, not competition, because cooperation is how everything works. Survival of the fittest, not even Darwin liked that idea. He was horrified later when that became associated with Darwin. That's how things evolve over thousands of years. That is not how, how plants or animals or societies work with each other. It's all through cooperation cooperation with one another because we all contribute to the whole. All of us contribute to the whole, no matter what our, whatever, what work we do, whatever our role is in life, we all contribute to this whole. Dharma teaches us that the universe is moving in its own sacred way. And when we participate that in that, we don't try to elbow others out of the way. That's not dharmic. We're all moving in the same direction. Instead, we give others a step up not elbowing them out. We don't, for us to be happy does not mean stepping on somebody else. That means exactly the opposite. We don't need to step on anyone to be happy because when we are living in a dharmic way, we are automatically happy because we're moving with the flow of the universe. We're moving with the flow as it should be. We don't try to overcharge people because that again is not dharmic, nor do we try to do anything that will weaken people in any way or manipulate people in any way. None of these things are dharmic. So when we're looking at livelihoods, we have to look that whatever we do, we have to do things in such a way that we become a better human being and they become a better human being. The goal of our life in Vedanta is to manifest this divinity within us that's already within us. We don't become different. We simply manifest the divinity already within us. So our livelihood has to be such that whatever we do, we help manifest this more, not weaken ourselves, not become more deluded. So our individual dharma depends on our stage in life and our situation in life. Our, the responsibility of a student is not the same as responsibility of an adult with a, with a job and a family. The responsibilities are different. If a person is retired and leading a secluded life, trying to have more of a spiritual life, their responsibilities are different. The responsibilities for a monk and nun are very different than the student or the person who's working in the world with a family. But each is valuable. Every dharma is valuable, and each is great in her or his own place. But then the question is, how do we know what our individual dharma is, which is called svadharma, our own individual dharma. How are we to know what it's to be? Because, well, for us, these old Vedic categories don't apply. I don't, you know, I'm peasant, king, warrior, merchant, you know. It's like, well, we've got a bookstore, but that doesn't really cut it, you know. Um, so how do we find ourselves in this, in this, in this society structures? I mean, where do you put data entry or marketing director or personal trainer, right? You know, so that's where, that's where it becomes a little more complicated. But then we have the Bhagavad Gita, yes, to give us some guidance on that. And Krishna in the fourth chapter says, guna karma The divisions of society, he says, are created by, according to guna and karma. Well, karma we know. But what do we mean by guna? 
Well, we've talked about the gunas here, uh, which are, the gunas are the three qualities, sattva, rajas, and tamas. Sattva is the guna of tranquility, of calmness, of purity. Rajas is restlessness, activity, passion, lots of activity, and tamas, laziness, lust, stupidity, dullness. Now, all of us have these three gunas in some measure or another, but every person is different according to what proportion of what guna. We might be more tamasic in the morning and more rajasic in the afternoon, or very few people are kind of like calm and tranquil all the time. But all this makes a difference on what our real svadharma is, what our role in the world is to be, what our right livelihood is to be. Then we have karma. Okay, what is my karma? What have I done in my previous actions and previous lives that have given me the temperament I have today? Because this combination of gunas in our own, in our own disposition and our karma determine what our svadharma is. Guna and karma. So our temperament, our interest, and above all, our aptitude determine what our svadharma is. Now, we often hear, honey, you can be anything you want to be, but that's just not true. You know, I want to be an astronaut, but I'm not physically fit, and I have no, I have no brains to be a scientist, and I don't have the discipline to make myself fit or a scientist. I can't do it, so I'm not going to ever be an astronaut. Don't tell me I'm going to be, if I want to be, I can be an astronaut. I don't have the temperament. I don't have the qualifications, and I don't have the karma. I, I might want to be an opera singer, but I might be tone deaf, and I might have no sense of rhythm. I, I will not be a successful opera singer. It's not going to work. I might want to be rich and famous, but my karma says, uh-uh. Your actions and your, from your previous lives determine that is not going to happen. Now, if you really, 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 really want to be rich and famous, if you work really hard this life and maybe the next life, you can be rich and famous, and you can be miserable like everybody else. Go ahead. Go, go for it. Have the experience and then come around this way and then you'll find out, you find out how to get some peace in your life. But it's all determined, guna and karma. So in order for us to know what our svadharma is, we have to have a very calm mind and a very good sense of honesty with ourselves. To look into ourselves and say, okay, what really is my temperament? What really is my aptitude? And what am I qualified for? What can I really do? And what do I really want? What does my temperament call me to do? I mean, I can't, if I want to be a yogi and I can't sit still, this is not going to work. If I want to work in a farm, but I really hate working, this is not going to work. So we really have to be very honest and develop a very calm mind to look into ourselves and say, guna karma, where are these work in my life and where am I going to be in a place so I can manifest my own divinity and help others, and help see the divinity in others. So once we get our svadharma, then we have to learn how to work for the sake of work alone, and to do to work for the sake of others. But that's another topic, which we'll discuss another day. So the idea of dharmas, I was working on this talk, I thought, oh my God, what I get into this, because it's so vast and it's so fascinating that you know, we can really go on for days, which I won't do to you, uh, for right now. What a life in dharma, doing our dharma means is to live harmoniously, 
to speak truthfully, and to live in such a way that we can manifest our own divinity and we can be aware of the divinity of others. And that is really what doing our dharma is. Thank you. And I will close with a chant, and if you know Purnamada, please join me. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnam Udachate Purnasya Purnamataya Purnameva Vashishate Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Om Filled with Brahman are the things we see. Filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman flows all that is. From out of Brahman flows all, yet Brahman remains the same. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.